0: Hello and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. This week I'm joined by a special guest. Caroline Hill. She's director of global policy and regulatory strategy at Circle. She brings a unique perspective on crypto and regulatory matters, having spent over seven years at the U.S. Treasury Department, serving in both the Office of Foreign Asset Control and the terrorist financing and financial crimes organization. We discuss how she first got into crypto, how important it is for the U.S. to build a balanced regulatory regime, and how stablecoins are likely to coexist with CBDCs in the future. We also talk about Circle's ambitions to become the most regulated stablecoin issuer in the world and some of the exciting new products circle is working on we reference quite a few blogs that are worth reading in full during the conversation so drop into the show notes to check those out after the episode i'm very honored to be joined by caroline hill who is director of global policy at circle previously served in the treasury department caroline thanks for joining us today great to have you here
1: ian thanks for having me i'm delighted to be here
0: I always love to start off hearing about crypto origin stories, you know, how you got into this crazy world of digital assets. I find the paths here are varied and unique. Looking at your background, I've been looking forward to your story all week. Maybe you can share.
1: Sure, absolutely. I came into this world in a little bit different way than some crypto traditionalist. As you mentioned, I had been at the Treasury Department for almost eight years. I started there back in 2014, when, of course, Bitcoin was on the scene, but it was still a very new and growing technology. I first started at the Treasury Department looking at individuals and companies who were trying to evade U.S. sanctions. Uh, I was looking at Iranians and Syrians helping the Assad regime and North Koreans, and really mapping out how they were looking to evade sanctions through traditional finance, means through front companies, shell companies, complicit banks, through wire transactions and and fraud in that way. And then I expanded my remit at Treasury to lead a team that was covering money laundering and terrorist financing policy in Western Hemisphere and Africa. And a lot of my conversations leading that team were with governments in those geographies who were looking at how innovative financial technology could help solve many of their domestic financial challenges. They had large populations of their country were unbanked or underbanked, cross-border remittances fees were incredibly high. A lot of these geographies had been de-risked by U.S. and Western financial institutions for honestly opaque reasons. And so they were looking at all of these innovative financial technologies to see how that digital assets and, and others could help them solve a lot of these challenges we see around financial inclusion and, and cross-border payments. But at Treasury, we are also looking at digital assets in service of our mission, which is protecting the U.S. financial system and the international financial system from abuse. The industry was very different even five years ago than it is today. There weren't uh, yet internationally agreed upon standards around how to fight illicit finance and digital assets. I'm incredibly proud of the work that my Treasury colleagues did at the Financial Action Task Force at FATF to raise those international standards and and create them. And I'm sure we'll get more into that later. But we were looking at digital assets in a way to protect the U.S. financial system from that abuse. And like I said, I think we've come a long way. And so through my time at Treasury, I got to know Circle and our stablecoin USDC. Uh, and really saw the incredible work that Circle was doing to promote a responsible digital currency, both here domestically and abroad
0: that's such an awesome entry point because I think you got to see firsthand the potential for an opportunity really that exists if we can extend the global financial system to people who are kind of outside the I like to think about it if you live in North America you live in Western Europe you're kind of middle income and above the financial system works great for you like you have access to credit it's relatively easy to move money your currency is is reasonably stable maybe the last few months notwithstanding here with the dollar inflation but outside of that circle, though, it's a completely different story in terms of just access, inclusion, confidence in currency. And so I would have to imagine like you saw both sides of the good and the bad of cryptocurrency, like the opportunity to prove the situation in places like West Africa, but also the negative externality of the technology being used in situations like terrorist financing or, or sanctions evasion.
1: I did. I did. But I want to emphasize that crypto is not different than the traditional financial system. I mentioned and I I purposely mentioned my time at the start of Treasury looking at sanctions evasion in Iran, North Korea, Syria, because that was all done through the formal financial system, the traditional financial system, TradFi as we know it. And so the mechanisms that individuals use to illicitly move money or move money to illicit persons is not all that dissimilar in the traditional financial system than in crypto. It is due to The technology that digital assets is built upon, public open source immutable ledgers, that has allowed firms like Chain Analysis to really take advantage of that public information to go after illicit finance. But I also wanna come back to a point you said, Ian, about finance working for us if you're middle income and in the United States and in Europe. I would push back a little bit on that about whether or not it's truly working well for us. As someone living in the United States, we have information coming to us real time. We are very used to kind of that on-demand culture. But I I don't think we have that same innovation. Traditionally speaking, in traditional finance, it takes three to five days for a Venmo payment to go through still. Sending money across borders is incredibly difficult. That still requires people studying or abroad or living abroad or moving abroad to come with challenging workarounds. So I think it is working fine, but I think there's a lot of room for improvement even here in the United States. And while we'd like to think that People in the United States have fair access to financial institutions and credit. We know that's not true. We know that there are individuals in the United States who are still unbanked, who are still underbanked, who are still living in the wrong zip code for certain financial services. And I think digital assets has the ability to democratize a lot of that.
0: I stand fully corrected. I think you're totally right. I Probably an oversimplification on my part. Points you're calling out are absolutely true. And actually, I one of my colleagues recently bought a house. They're not a U.S. citizen. The process of getting a mortgage in the United States, even though they're more than necessary finances to qualify for the loan, the process of doing that as a non-U.S. citizen with a U.S. bank, incredibly complex. So definitely room for improvement, even in the context of what I mentioned. After kind of getting exposed to the opportunity with cryptocurrency, opportunity to impact the world and seeing firsthand what Circle was doing, what led you into this this policy role with Circle? And maybe talk a little bit about the things that you're focused on in the job since joining Circle last year.
1: I think it's an incredibly interesting time to be in the policy space in digital assets, but specifically stable coins, because so much of the regulatory frameworks are still being written. The White House and the Treasury Department, as part of the President's Working Group, put out a report last fall really calling on Congress here in the United States to develop a prudential framework for regulation. Of course, we have regulation around illicit finance, around AML, through state money transmission licenses and FinCEN as a money service business, which I'll note that Treasury takes full advantage of and, and fully regulated under under MTLs and MSBs. But there's still that prudential framework that needs to be developed, and many questions need to be worked out in that. That's also happening in real time, as we've seen in Europe with the markets and crypto assets framework. We have seen the Brits starting to make moves towards regulation and then other jurisdictions pass that. In addition, we've seen more jurisdictions now lower Look at how to regulate from an illicit finance standpoint, because of the very clear, encompassing, and wide-ranging guidance that the FATF has put out around how to regulate illicit finance for stablecoins and virtual assets, as they call them, and, and virtual asset service providers (VASP). The regulations are still very much in development, and Circle has already always taken a very dedicated viewpoint to working with regulators to determine frameworks that provide the highest assurance to customer safety, customer protection, consumer protections, customer safety, and provide trust and transparency in these digital dollars. And so it's, it's been a commitment of Circle and of Mind's joining Circle to walk through the front door with members of Congress and foreign governments and foreign regulators and commit to regulation in a responsible manner that continues to foster financial innovation.
0: Yeah, I think the work Circle has been doing is really admirable. I think there's a lot of frustration in the crypto ecosystem about relationship with regulators, right? Like too much regulation, not enough regulation, the, the wrong regulation. And this is not just a U.S. problem, right? I, I was just last week in Korea and Singapore, had the opportunity to talk with executives from crypto businesses kind of all across the, the greater sort of Asia region. Same story there right? They're frustrated. And I think Circle's position has been really powerful, sort of from since I started watching the industry, certainly, Circle sort of said, hey, we're going to be the most regulated, most compliant, most collaborative with the regulator crypto business that exists out there. And I, I've i certainly enjoyed kind of reading your colleague Dante's blogs. The la- we'll link to these in the show notes for people that haven't seen them. But, you know, Dante is kind of outlining the details behind a Circle's philosophy on this. How's that been received from regulators? I gather that you're, you're interacting with them pretty regularly. Like, do they pick up on the effort that Circle's putting into it? And is that paying dividends for you all?
1: We have found regulators to be extremely welcoming of this type of engagement. As you and I have were remarking on before we started uh, recording, the technology in this industry is moving incredibly quickly. And it seems like every day there's a new, you know, layer two protocol or DeFi protocol or algorithmic stablecoin out there. That has a slightly unique technology and, and needs to really be explained to governments and regulators as they look to how we regulate this. And so we have found a really productive conversations around the best way forward. And frankly, we have tried to model our business and our strategy on the most transparent and fiscally responsible mechanism, you know, to ensure that trust and usability of USDC. And so We have found talking about how we do that with regulators to be incredibly productive.
0: That's amazing. I think your point about the tech needing explanation is actually a useful segue for my next question, because I was looking at some of the stats on the amount of USDC issued and redeemed, and I was actually surprised. It's an incredible volume, right? I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars over the last 12 months that transit from fiat currency into USDC and back again. Can you talk a little bit about stablecoins generally, and then maybe specifically USDC, like your perspective on how they're being used and kind of how they fit into the larger cryptocurrency ecosystem? Because I get this question a lot from my friends that are on the outside of crypto looking in. What's a stablecoin? Why do I need that? I thought like Bitcoin was digital gold. I should just buy it and hold it forever. Like stablecoins play an important Role here that I don't think everyone really understands fully.
1: Absolutely, stablecoins—the initial use case, USDC was launched in in 2018, and as you said, by last count, I think has been used over four trillion US dollars in on-chain transactions. Really widespread adoption, and we've seen stablecoins and USDC provide a lot of that market liquidity around decentralized finance protocols, around DeFi. That to us seems like the first step in stablecoins use and adoption. With that and with the development of blockchains that have provided high transaction per second output that have provided low gas fees and are focused on a lot of the traditional challenges around sending digital tokens, we've seen USDC being increasingly used in the payment space as well. And I think that that's where USDC adoption will continue to grow as well. But of course, stable coins are a trusted source, or some stable coins are a trusted source to shield from market volatility and, and other asset volatility in holding your crypto in a coin that you know is still going to be worth a dollar tomorrow or next week or next month. At least you know when you hold it in USDC, it will still be worth a dollar next week, next month.
0: So just to play that out for people, like if I have excess capital that I want to earn some return on, I could buy something like Bitcoin or Ethereum and then deposit it into a lending yield type DeFi protocol like Compound or Aave or, or Uniswap. But then I'm subject to the market volatility, whereas I could... I could have that same asset but in USDC. So then I'm at least benchmarked against the dollar value. I'm not subject to to variation in that exchange rate. And there's still quite a lot of lending opportunity for that asset on those platforms. So sort of protects me against at least one of the risks associated with participation in the DeFi ecosystem. Did I follow that chain of events correctly? Exactly. One of the things I heard people ask is like, you know, right now we've seen, I think most governments sort of hesitant to get into issuing of CBDC, central bank issued digital currency. How do you all think about that at Circle? Like, are you advocates for CBDCs? Do you see that as unnecessary with trusted platform like Circle?
1: You know, hearkening back to my time at the Treasury Department, I understand why governments are looking towards new technology to update the incredibly old rickety rails that our current financial system <laughs> operates on. And and that's really the best example that I can think of is an old train tracks. Because the technology, like we talked about earlier, is you know, within the United States it still takes three to five days to send a send a transaction, or you pay kind of absurd fee if you want to send it instantly through, through a wire. So I understand why countries are looking towards these innovative financial solutions. And given my time covering the Western Hemisphere in Africa, I also understand from a financial inclusion standpoint why countries are looking to bring people in the financial system. And so I think that countries think that the solution to a lot of those problems are central bank digital currency. But I think what we forget is that most money in circulation today is not actually central bank issued. It's it's issued by the two-tiered financial system. And that's very purposeful. There's a lot of credit and lending reasons that it's that way. It still allows the Fed to conduct their monetary policy. And depending on the model that a CBDC takes, it could really upset that balance of a two-tiered financial system. I also personally don't think that government should be in the business of choosing technology winners and losers. And that's what you would have happen if you were choosing a CBDC. We've seen in the United States, you know, since its creation that the private sector is really the leading innovator. And if there are ways for the government to take advantage of those innovations, I think that that's great. But creating a CBDC on a distributed ledger technology, I think is then having a government uh, choose a 50 plus year, if not longer, technology bet that I don't think we want them to be doing. Doing. And then while I feel lucky in this respect being in the United States, I do think that there's real privacy concerns to think about. It. Whether or not we want governments all around the world having access to that type of financial granularity of their citizens and of people who live in those countries. We've seen China launch the ECNY and there are, are real privacy concerns in China and we've seen some of those play out already and giving any government access to that type of information I think is dangerous. We in the United States have to act very carefully because whatever the United States government does, other governments will follow suit. Of course there will be other governments that act first, but we will be a incredible standard setter for what the future of CBDCs look like. And so So I'm really pleased and I applaud the Federal Reserve for taking such a deliberative and thoughtful process to this. Um, and I know that they will continue and I know that they've you know, solicited inputs from Circle and the general public around the future of CBDCs. And I'll note that digital asset companies are not the only ones with concerns around CBDCs. The traditional financial sector is as well. And so I think that there needs to continue to be that careful thought around whether or not a U.S. issued CBDC or a CBDC-, CBDC issued by other governments really solves the problems that we're trying to solve for or whether or not private industry has already solved a lot of those and are continuing to.
0: Yeah, there's so many great points in there. The two-tier banking system is one that actually I hadn't really thought about a lot. But obviously, you and I don't have accounts at the Federal Reserve, right? We're not depositing. We can't borrow from the overnight window at the Fed like a registered bank can. Does that maybe open the door for... A CBDC that is not retail focused, so more for the Federal Reserve to manage the deposit relationship with banks that they're dealing with, or potentially intra-government, because obviously a lot of countries hold deposit assets at the U.S. Federal Reserve. Do you see that potential playing out in the future, or do you think really the stablecoin should remain the domain of, of kind of private enterprise uh, financial services arena?
1: Certainly, I think the Fed is considering what those wholesale options look like um, and how consumers might interact with those wholesale options. Whether or not it's only via the interbank model or intra-central bank model, as you talked about, or whether or not they would issue CBDCs to retail institutions, but consumers like you and I would still have access to CBDCs. And then, are they interest-bearing? Are they non-interest-bearing? Are Are you then creating kind of a two-tiered? system of, of dollars. You have a CBDC, but then you have your um, commercial bank deposits. And if one holds gives you more interest than the other, where are you putting your money and are there limits? And, you know, a lot of that then gets to a financial literacy challenge, which is how do we, it's, it's difficult enough, I think, for people very skilled in the financial sector to understand the future of where this is going, but let alone people with you know less sophisticated more elementary understandings of, of how this system all works you know no doubt I think we're all in agreement that the rails in which our, our system runs on needs to be updated and perhaps there's a central bank to central bank CBdc model that could that could also work but that is also assuming that central banks come together and then use all the same technology which is also a challenge although you know interoperability of these systems is key in the entire ecosystem so it seems it seems like there are a lot of hurdles there are a lot of smart people at the Federal are looking at this, a lot of smart people internationally looking at this, but there seem to be a lot of challenges as you really think about the mechanics.
0: Absolutely. The second point that you brought up that I wanted to touch on was what China's up to. So obviously the digital yuan project, I think by almost everybody outside of China sees it as this sort of mass surveillance project on par with their deployment of CCTV, which is kind of to take cash out of the ecosystem and just have visibility everywhere. Have I got that right? I mean, is there, is there any other angle to that that you can kind of take on that project?
1: I think that's absolutely right. And certainly the combination, the CCP having access to that data in and of itself is dangerous. The CCP having access to that data in combination with access to health data, with combination of other type of screening that they're doing on their citizens, I think is extremely dangerous. I think we've also seen China weaponize financial assistance in developing countries recently. You know, some may quibble with my use of the term weaponized, but certainly predatory lending is a term you can't argue with. And I do worry about the future of where the yuan goes, should they decide to use that outside of China, in some of these developing countries. Certainly putting on my old treasury hat again, you know, development of the e in China would make sanctions enforcement much more difficult and would make some of our economic financial diplomacy tools much more difficult to enforce as well.
0: And I think that's the core argument behind why the U.S. needs to get policy regulation figured out clearly, as opposed to debating whether the cryptocurrency ecosystem writ large can just be kind of like deleted is because we're not the only people involved here. Right. Like if we're not at the forefront, it seems like China is certainly ready, willing and eager to step in and you know fill the void uh, is if the United States isn't leading the way.
1: Exactly. We really think at Circle that we're in the midst of a digital currency space race. And there are a whole host of reasons that it's important that the United States remain a leader in this. And I was really pleased to see that so strongly reflected in President Biden's uh, executive order on crypto assets around the need for U.S. economic competitiveness. Being able to enforce our economic sanctions, but it's also fostering responsible innovation, we want to bring companies here and put them under the U.S. regulatory framework in a way we know that they're protecting consumers, they're screening for money laundering and terrorist financing risk, they, their bankruptcy protections, et cetera, around that, rather than pushing them offshore into jurisdictions that don't have that.
0: That is super important. I think I would be remiss to, to have you on and not touch on kind of, I, I would say, the controversy around stable coins broadly, right? Like it's been one of the more exciting topics, I would say, over the last four months, which maybe uh, goes against the name stablecoin. I'll just drop the statement, you know, not all stable coins are created equal when it comes to stability, maybe. And like unpack that for me, what's been going on and, and what's the circle perspective on on the ecosystem of stable coins?
1: Absolutely. that is, I could not agree more. Not all stable coins are, are stable. And frankly, they're not all created equal either. Our CEO, Jeremy Allaire, a few weeks back said that USDC is boring circle is continuing to innovate in our product offerings we're continuing to innovate in how USdc is used and how we you know ensure the ease of use but USdc is always worth a dollar and part of the reason is because we have taken such a focused strategy on how we hold our reserves we're incredibly transparent around what they are we're incredibly transparent uh, you know we have monthly attestations from Grant Thornton we publish our reserves weekly on our website uh, you can always redeem us DC one to one for a US dollar. We have not seen such transparency within the stablecoin industry. There are other stablecoins out there who, in fact, guard that information quite close, and therefore, I don't think consumers have that same trust and fidelity into whether or not that stablecoin will truly be worth a dollar tomorrow, a month, six months, a year from now. And if you can't be worth, if you can't trust in the value of what you're holding, then, then in my mind, it's worthless. Now, that's talking about fiat-backed stablecoins. Of course, there are algorithmic-backed stablecoins, which I think are called stablecoins in name only because we've seen a number of them fail recently. Of course, the largest example and the most recent one being Terra Luna and that crash and death spiral. You know, I think... Some of the important ongoing conversation here in the U.S. government is how do you really define a stablecoin? And if we're continuously seeing algorithmic stablecoins crash, is that really then a stablecoin? I think what stablecoin reserve composition looks like in the future will also be something that comes out in in future legislation and, and regulatory frameworks.
0: I think I saw something that said that Suggested Circle wanted to be regulated as a bank, which I think underlying that, then implies something like the capital reserve ratio analysis, stress testing that we saw coming out of the '08 financial crisis. Is that the intent? Like, is that where you would like to see this go and that level of rigor applied to anybody that wants to create a stable coin?
1: We've always advocated for the same risk, same rules model like i've mentioned there is over 55 billion dollars in usdc on chain right now and we have 55 billion dollars in short-term t-bills or cash sitting in u.s regulated financial institutions that is a very different model than than what banks conduct with fractional lending, and those capital buffer requirements are written for that fractional lending model. So I I think what we've started to see emerge in what's coming out of the Hill is more of a same risk, same rules model, which is if you're not conducting fractional lending, do you need those those same type of capital buffer requirements?
0: It struck me as I was looking at some of the, the reserve attestations on the website that you mentioned a moment ago, Circle's business is not dependent on return generated from the assets backing USDC, which it doesn't necessarily seem that all other stable coins are taking that same approach, right? Like You have an asset that's facilitating transfer of the same asset into a digital form, so it exists on chain. It's not a business into itself where you're running a lending practice out the back door based on those assets as well.
1: Exactly. Uh, 80% of our reserves are in short-term T-bills and anyone can see uh, what the rate of return is on that. And 20% of our reserves are in cash.
0: You said a second ago that Jeremy's message to the company was...
1: Publicly. Yeah. Was it public? It was. USDC is boring.
0: USDC is boring. But I don't think that's the whole story. I mean, you you all are launching some new products. I think I saw a euro-denominated stablecoin is in the works. What else is happening at Circle that we should know about?
1: Yes, as you mentioned, just recently launched and announced the EuroCoin, which is a Euro-backed stablecoin available in all the same places that USDC is available. It's held to the same standards as USDC, same reserve standards that I mentioned, the same regulations that I mentioned. One thing I wanted to touch on, given that I'm talking to you at Chain Analysis, that I think is quite interesting is Circle's recent announcement of a digital identity credential called Verity. You know, I I think the challenges around digital identity are well known. But of course, they're numerous. And they touch upon again, my previous job of treasury, which is it's oftentimes difficult for people to get access to digital identity, they become honeypots of information. As somebody who worked in the US government when there was the large OPM hack of a lot of PII. um, I I was
0: caught up in that at the time I had a security clearance. So I was part of the breach. I remember that one.
1: Yep. You and you (laughs) and thousands of other people, I think
0: a few million, maybe it was was a pretty big one. Yeah, it was
1: it was. And then you know, having to show PII over and over and really showing information that not every uh, institution needs to see. I mean, at a very rudimentary example. Uh, every time I try to prove that I'm I'm 21, which hasn't happened in many years. But when I, I needed to prove that I was 21, I don't need to give that bar, that restaurant, my home address or the fact that I'm an organ donor. I just need to prove that I'm 21. So we partnered with others in the digital asset space to launch an open source protocol called Verity, which is a credential that the user controls and can then use in different use cases to prove they are who they say they are. And that would be a cryptographically secure credential that doesn't actually give out that PII. So in my, again, my rudimentary example, instead of showing my driver's license, I could just show my verity credential that says yes I'm over twenty-one and it was issued by this issuing agency that said I'm over twenty-one. And you know what I think this really represents is the digital assets industry is really partnering together to continue to build upon that those fundamental tenets of the industry, which is privacy preserving while still maintaining that AML, CFT, KYC, BSA compliance that is so integral and pivotal to the industry. Verity is one such example, but there are other things we're doing and we have in-train on that as well.
0: I think this is the next horizon of utility for blockchain, right? Like currency has been, I think, well suited. And that's why we've seen such an explosion of cryptocurrency projects as we kind of rebuild and reinvent the financial system atop blockchain. But identity seems like the immediate next horizon and next exciting thing. This sounds awesome. I can't wait to learn more about that. We'll link in the show notes to where people can go explore. I think right now you're trying to attract developers into the ecosystem, people who are building applications where verified identity is is useful so we'll make sure people can find that caroline it's been an awesome conversation with you i think we could probably go on for about an hour it's uh there's so many other topics i want to talk about maybe we can just wrap on one given your background at treasury circle is unique in that i think you've taken this proactive stance on both kyc is kind of core to the business like this idea of actually knowing your customers but also when The bad guys are using USDC or, you know, they managed to steal some. You actually have the technology to freeze those assets on chain and have been able to assist in some retrievals. Can you talk about the philosophy around that? Because I think that's quite a bit different than approaches that we've seen in other areas of the cryptocurrency ecosystem.
1: Absolutely. And first, I would be remiss if I didn't say that the compliance team at Circle is really top notch and they do a a fantastic job at what they do. I think that we have seen this technology and the open source nature of public blockchains has really allowed for incredible opportunities in follow the money. Now putting on both of my hats, my, my treasury hat and my circle hat, follow the money investigations are incredibly difficult in the in the TradFi space. You have to pursue mutual legal assistance treaties if you're trying to follow money in other jurisdictions. It is time consuming, it's it's often leading to dead ends when you have shell companies that you can't trace any further. When I've spoken off the record with colleagues who are still doing these types of investigations, the message has always been the same. We would rather trace illicit finance flows on public blockchains than. In traditional finance and tradifying. And again, I think that's also due in large part to the incredible work that companies such as Chain Analysis and TRM Labs and Elliptic are doing to do that type of analytics on top of public blockchains. But I think that we'll continue to see, we've seen incredible seizures and cases come out of DOJ when they're following the money. And I think we'll continue to see those and of course, you know, Circle works with, with law enforcement and then the U.S. government in those types of cases as well. But I think we'll continue to see those grow and expand in the future as, again, I think it's just a more transparent case to build.
0: Takeaway is Circle's building the most compliant, secure, safe, stable coin in the, the cryptocurrency ecosystem. That's what I learned on this episode. Caroline, it was great to talk to you. I learned a lot. Truly enjoyed it. Thanks so much for being on uh, on Public Key.
1: Thanks Ian, thanks again for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. We're releasing new episodes weekly, so if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe, review, and of course, share with your friends. Here's something to consider while you wait for our next episode. Last week, the EU passed MICA, a major regulatory package covering digital assets. Somewhat surprisingly, the response from the crypto industry has been largely positive. Meanwhile, the US Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, delivered to President Biden a framework for engagement with foreign counterparts on digital assets. While not quite Comparable to MICA, the framework is intended to enable U.S. agencies to put into action the philosophy described in the March 9th executive order, which can be summarized as create reasonable regulation that enables innovation while protecting consumers and the global financial system. Whether we'll see a more comprehensive regulatory framework in the U.S. before year end elections remains to be seen. Finally, Don't forget to grab your copy of the Chainalysis State of Web 3 report or watch the on-demand webinar. Links to both are in the show notes.